0: Well, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> I began sort of a short series from this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I began this last week, and 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter of the Bible. If Hebrews chapter 11 is the faith chapter, if 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, well, 1 Corinthians 15 could well be the resurrection chapter because all 58 verses of this particular chapter, the Apostle Paul deals with the theology of the resurrection. In the first several verses, he deals with the issue of Christ's resurrection, and he presents the gospel in sort of summary form that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. Uh, He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he emphasizes the fact that Christ was seen after his resurrection. And so the resurrection is corroborated by eyewitness testimony. And so really, the theme of the first 11 verses is resurrection gospel. Our gospel is a resurrection gospel. Well, in the passage that we're going to come to, Paul is going to transition from dealing with Christ's resurrection to uh, explaining the implications uh, about that resurrection and what it means for us as those who were believers. And so really the majority of this chapter deals with the resurrection of the believer because Christ is raised, so also will I be raised as someone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, someone who's been brought into vital union with Christ. Now I read something recently that caught my attention. And it's basically within the field of the study of history, there's this branch of study that's known as counterfactual history. You say, well, what in the world is that? Well, basically, counterfactual history attempts to answer uh, certain what-if questions known as counterfactuals. Uh, Basically, you've got this group of thinkers who they they go back through history and they try to look at important battles and key events in history and they think about, well, what if something different happened? What would have the outcome been as far as history is concerned? Uh, What if Napoleon at Waterloo actually defeated Wellington rather than Wellington defeating Napoleon? What if? What would the world have been like? Uh, What if Robert E. Lee in the Confederacy won at the Battle of Gettysburg? What would that have meant for our country? What if Martin Luther had decided against the Reformation? What if he decided to just avoid all of the controversy uh, that was associated with mailing his 95 theses to the door of Castle Church there in Wittenberg? Uh, What would have been the state of Christianity? Or my personal favorite, uh, what if Truett Cathy didn't invent the chicken sandwich? (laughs) That's an absolute nightmare of a scenario. Could you imagine the world without Chick-fil-A? Now the thing is, counterfactual history, it's not real history because history has already happened. Yet we know that history is full of decisive moments, decisive victories that inevitably change the course of human history. But let me give you another what-if question. What if the resurrection of Jesus Christ had not happened? What if Jesus had not been raised from the dead? What if the women who went to the tomb on resurrection Sunday had found the stone still intact, the soldiers were still at their post, what if the body of the Lord still lay cold and lifeless there in the darkness of the tomb? Now, that's a terrible scenario to imagine, but that's exactly what the apostle Paul does here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beginning in verse number 12, notice with me uh, what the apostle Paul writes. He says, "Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead?" And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now listen to what he says in verse 19. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if our hope in Christ is concerned with only this life as it is now. If there were no resurrection, if the grave was all she wrote, if the tomb was final, if death was absolute, if there were no resurrection, Paul says, then we would be, as those who believe in Christ, we would be of all people the most to be pitied, the most miserable on the planet. And yet, thank God for what he says in verse number 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so I want to speak from this subject this morning, resurrection hope. If the first part of of this chapter deals with resurrection gospel, the second part deals with the resurrection hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you what the Apostle Paul is doing here in this particular chapter. Uh, He's presenting us with a hypothetical situation. You know what a hypothetical situation is. It's that what-if scenario. And so he's going to follow a certain line of logic here. If there were no resurrection, if the resurrection were not true, like so many of the Greek philosophers had been telling these Corinthian believers, if the resurrection were not true, then logically there would be several consequences that would be true as a result of no resurrection. Now in this passage, there are at least six of these consequences, and I wanna give these to you just one right after the other. So number one, if there is no resurrection, if it were all just a bunch of make believe, uh, Paul says that first of all, our savior would be lifeless. That is, if there were no resurrection, Jesus Christ would still be dead, he would still be in his tomb, he would be in the grave, Uh, There would be no hope for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. A lifeless Savior cannot provide living hope. Now you know what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse three, he says that God, according to his abundant mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the hope that we have as Christian men and women, it's a living hope. The best that this world can offer you is a dying hope, something that cannot last, something that's not substantive. But the gospel offers a living hope because we serve a living Lord. That word hope that's used both there uh, in 1 Peter, it's the same word that the Apostle Paul is using here in this particular passage. Biblical hope, uh, it doesn't refer to that which is uncertain, but rather the word refers to certainty, In fact, biblical hope speaks of profound certainty that's based upon historical event. The idea is we have something concrete, something upon which to stake all of our confidence, something upon which to build our lives and to stake all of our hopes simply because the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. That's why Christianity is a historical faith. Christianity is not simply uh, a religion founded upon the ethical teachings of some religious leader who lived and died. Christianity, listen, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have no Christianity. You take away the living Lord out of Christianity, and you have no Christianity. You have no gospel. You have no hope. Because a lifeless Savior would not be able to provide living hope. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus would have been merely a man who died the same way as other men have lived and died. He couldn't have saved anyone from the clutches of death. Now you'll notice there in verse number 12 that evidently there were some in Corinth who had denied the truth of bodily resurrection. And again, I mentioned this last week, but the city of Corinth was a Greek city and Greek philosophy at the time did not allow for the resurrection of the dead. Uh, You read about... Paul planting the Corinthian church in Acts chapter 18. But in chapter 17, before he was in Corinth, Paul was in the city of Athens. And Acts chapter 17 talks about how Paul went up to Mars Hill and he reasoned with all of those Athenian philosophers, preached the gospel. But then when he began preaching the truth of Christ's resurrection, uh, Acts 17.32 says that many of them mocked when they heard him use that word, that term, Resurrection because according to the Greek understanding and the Greek mind and the Greek philosophical system, there is no resurrection. Greek philosophy thought that the body was a prison for the soul. And so that ultimate release was found upon death when the soul was freed from the body or the prison, the body uh, which housed it. And so that led to a couple of other branches of thought in, in Greek philosophy. Uh, the Greek world, you had Epicureanism, which basically was the pursuit of unbridled pleasure. Life was all about pursuing pleasure. There is no resurrection, so what you ought to do is just, you know, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Uh, The opposite end of the spectrum was another philosophical line of thought, uh, the Stoics, The Stoics kind of felt like the pursuit of pleasure was not something that one should really live their life for, but rather they should live their life for the acquisition of knowledge and that kind of thing. But both of these ideas and philosophies were founded upon this understanding that there is no bodily resurrection. But biblical Christianity teaches something different. The Bible teaches that the physical body was part of God's good creation and is an essential part of humanity. Yet we know that sin uh, establishes a beachhead in the body and our bodies are subject now to sickness and death and decay simply because of the curse of sin. But make no mistake about it, God has a plan for the body and that body involves resurrection. That plan involves future resurrection. Salvation does not just deal with the spirit but also deals with the body. One of these days, at the return of Christ, the dead in Christ are going to rise, and they're going to be given a resurrection body. And a generation of believers who were alive at the coming of the Lord, they're going to experience rapture, where they won't die, but they're going to instantly be changed at the twinkling of an eye, and they too are going to be given this glorified resurrection body that's patterned after our Lord's own body. So Paul is saying here in this hypothetical situation, if if there were no resurrection, if all of this were an illusion, then Jesus would still be in his tomb. Our Savior would be lifeless and a lifeless Savior can't save anybody. Now that leads to a second consequence. The second consequence is this. If the resurrection were not true, not only would our Savior be lifeless, but our preaching ultimately would be pointless. It's almost as if once that first domino topples over, it initiates a chain of events that happen as a result. So this second consequence logically follows the first. Uh, If there were no resurrection, Jesus is not raised. If Jesus is not raised, then our preaching is in vain and totally pointless. That's what Paul is saying there in verse number 14. In fact, the word vain that he uses there translates a Greek adjective Uh, The word is kenos, it means empty. Uh, Several places in the New Testament where this word is used, it's also translated as empty-handed. The idea is there's no substance to give. Uh, It's descriptive of an empty container with nothing on the inside to pour out. And that's what Paul says that our preaching would be apart from the truth of the resurrection. Think about it, that's all Christianity would be a nice shiny package with a bow on the outside that looks good on the outside, but there's no content on the inside. In other words, my preaching this morning were the resurrection not true, my preaching would be a waste of time. Uh, The life that God's called me to as far as ministry and preaching the gospel ultimately would be a fool's errand. Church would be non-essential were the resurrection not true. Ministry would be inconsequential. There would be no practical benefit whatsoever, no ultimate purpose or meaning behind it. One theologian put it this way, the person and work of Jesus Christ are the rock upon which the Christian faith is built. If he is not who he said he was and if he did not do what he said he had come to do, then the foundation is undermined and the whole structure collapses. Apart from the resurrection, the central message of Christianity becomes nothing but moralism. But even worse than that, it becomes moralism with no ultimate purpose. I mean, why even bother with the ethics of Christianity if the founder of our faith is still in the grave? This is where a lot of liberal Christianity went. Whenever it denied the truth of the resurrection and denied the supernatural uh, in the early part of the 20th century... And even before that, in the wake of the Enlightenment, you had all these thinkers who came along and said, no, you can rule out all of the, the supernatural. The resurrection message is just a symbolic message, not a literal message. What really we take away from Christianity is the Sermon on the Mount, to which I simply would say, what purpose? What purpose would the message of the Sermon on the Mount ultimately serve if the founder of our faith were still in his tomb? You'd have nothing any different from the other world's religions. So the first consequence, if there were no resurrection, our Savior would be lifeless. Our preaching would be pointless. And then, third, a third consequence, Paul says that our faith would be useless. He says this in verse 14, not only would our preaching be in vain, he says, but ultimately your faith would be in vain. Again, what would be the purpose of attending church? Reading your Bible, giving your time, your energy, your resources, serving, and all of that. It would all be one meaningless religious exercise were the resurrection not true. One of the leading atheist thinkers of the last century was a guy by the name of Bertrand Russell. But Bertrand Russell said this. He said, the life of man is one long march through the night, surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain towards a goal that few can hope to reach where none can tarry long he says one by one as they march our comrades vanish from our sight seized by the silent orders of omnipotent death brief and powerless is man's life on him and all his race the slow sure doom falls pitiless and dark blind to good and evil reckless of destruction omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. For Bertrand Russell, there is no omnipotent God, there's only omnipotent death. There is no omnipotent Lord, there is only omnipotent matter. Now, how would you like to have your morning devotions with that guy? (laughs) What kind of a hopeless existence would that be? What kind of ultimate pointless existence would we, we, uh, we have as human beings? Your family wouldn't matter. Your career, your vocation, what you've chosen to do in life, ultimately that would not matter were the resurrection not true. So that's one of the most bleak statements I think that I've ever read. And yet, Were the resurrection not true, that's exactly what the outcome of life and faith would be. You take away the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's all you have left. Your life would be nothing more than one long, dark march through the night. So our faith would be in vain. Our Savior would still be in the tomb. Our preaching would be pointless. But then number four, there's a fourth consequence that Paul mentions. Verses 15 and 16, he says, were the resurrection not true, our witness would be truthless. He says, we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If it's true, the dead are not raised. So if the resurrection were not true, the apostles would be nothing more than con men. That's what he's saying there. They would be the world's greatest liars and hucksters. And yet we know from scripture that the resurrection was central to the message that the apostles preached. I mean, think about these men. Uh, When Jesus was crucified, most of them were in hiding. They were in an upper room, cowering in fear, and yet the news of the resurrection and going to the tomb and seeing the tomb empty and Jesus beginning to appear uh, to those early apostles, something happened to change those men drastically. I think about Peter on the night that uh, That Jesus was arrested Peter denies knowing the Lord three times even cowering down before a servant girl uh, as he was warming himself at a fire but then just a few weeks later after the risen Christ had appeared to him this same man stands boldly and preaches the gospel the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and 3,000 people are converted to faith what made the difference in Peter's life Was he a con man? Was he someone who just had high hopes and that was it? Did he experience some hallucination? No. It was an encounter with the risen Christ that changed his life and thereby gave power to his witness. And so to be an apostle required that one be witness of the resurrection. And so you've got Peter, you've got Paul, you've got James, you've got the apostle John. These were men who saw the risen Lord. And they paid for their testimony with their own blood. Uh, those men laid down their lives for the cause of Christ among the nations. Was it a lie that they laid their lives down for? No. It was the risen Jesus. And so Paul says, were the resurrection not true though? Our witness ultimately would be without truth. We would all be a bunch of liars. Not to mention the fact that Jesus himself would be the greatest liar who ever lived. Because at least seven times in the gospel accounts, Jesus is on record uh, telling his disciples and telling people that he would rise from the grave on the third day. That the son of man would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised to life again. So if he were not raised, then Jesus himself was a liar The apostles were all con men. And all of this is a consequence if the resurrection were not true. Now, number five, there's a fifth consequence. Without the resurrection, our Savior would be lifeless. Preaching would be pointless. Faith would be useless. Witness would be truthless. But fifth, our separation would be endless. I mean, look at what Paul says there in verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. There's no hope of salvation for you if Christ is not raised. And those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Who are the ones who've fallen asleep in Christ? This is not a reference to those who've fallen asleep during the preacher's sermon. Those who've fallen asleep in Christ. This is Paul speaking descriptively of those believers who have died in the Lord. He says if there were no resurrection, if these believers who have died in the Lord ultimately were separated from our loved ones, we're never going to see them again. And that separation will be endless if Christ did not rise. The power of sin would remain unbroken in my life if Christ did not rise. If he did not rise, then sin got the best of him and death has held him in the grave. And that means that his death on the cross would be meaningless and ineffective. It would be the tragic waste of a life, but you see it was the resurrection of Jesus that validated Christ's suffering on the cross and it gave verifiable proof that God has accepted his sacrifice. And Paul says this much in Romans chapter four, he says Christ was delivered up for our trespasses but he was raised for our justification. That is, you would have no salvation. There would be no justification and you being declared righteous if Christ were not risen from the dead. (laughs) And Paul teases this out. He gets on into Romans chapter five and six and says that we've been reconciled to God through the death of his son. And now that we're reconciled, he says we're saved by his endless life. Why is your salvation secure as a believer? Why do you not have to fear losing your salvation as a believer? It's because Christ ever lives. It's because he's keeping you saved by means of his endless life. And so my salvation, it's not so much dependent upon me doing my best to hold on to Christ as much as it is Christ who's holding on to me. And I'm glad that there is an ever living Lord who is holding on to me in the midst of life's biggest disappointments, in the face of my biggest mistakes, the biggest boneheaded decisions that I've made in my life, in my ongoing struggle with sin, if I could lose my salvation, I would lose my salvation. But thanks be to God, there's an empty tomb to prove that my Savior is alive and He's holding on to me. And He's holding on to you. And so now we've been brought into union with Christ in His death and resurrection. The old me died when Christ died. And the new me has been raised with Christ to endless life. That's why Paul says what he does in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and yet I live. How can you be crucified with Christ and yet live at the same time? He says, yet it's not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so Christ in you, this is the hope of glory. And without this endless life of Christ, there would be no forgiveness of sin, there would be no salvation, there would be no eternal life. And Paul says there would be no hope for those who've died in Christ. And that means we could never come to the funeral service of a Christian and say with confidence, I'll see you again. Were the resurrection not true Were there no resurrection, death would be final. The grave would be absolute. Now listen, there's not a single person here this morning who's not at some point felt the pain of death. Whether it be the loss of a loved one, maybe a spouse, a parent, a child. But imagine you come to that situation and you're staring into that hole it's soon to be a loved one's grave and yet you have no promise of resurrection. You have no guarantee that our loved ones who've died in Christ are secure and that you'll ever see them again. Imagine not having that hope. Ladies and gentlemen, when the tragedy of death strikes, it's the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us hope as the people of God. And that's why death for the believer, and if you've experienced the loss of a loved one, it's not farewell. It's simply, I'll see you in the morning. The Apostle Paul says elsewhere that as believers, when we lose those that we love, we sorrow. But not as those who have no hope. A believer and an unbeliever grieves in two different ways. I sense this the hardest thing I think that I've ever had to do as a pastor is to preach the funeral services for those that did not know the Lord. And most of those times you've got a room full of unbelievers and it's a great evangelistic opportunity. But for one brief pause, a person is made aware of their own mortality. Reality is set in. They realize that, man, Life is short, it's so very brief. Is there anything that can give me hope? Is there anything that can last? Is there anything that will stand the test of time? And Paul comes along and says, absolutely. It's the gospel. It's this resurrection hope that we have. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I mean, did you hear that? I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And our world around us in this unbelieving culture uh, fights against this and screams against this and tells you every day that this life is all that there is. Jesus says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. You believe in me. Though you experience physical death, let me tell you something, you will live. And you can be in possession of eternal life. And folks, all of this has practical implications for how we live every day. It's the truth of this resurrection that brings power into our life and our witness. It's what ought to keep you putting one foot in front of the other as a believer. The fact that no matter how you may feel at any given moment, by way of subjective feeling, you know what objective truth says? That Christ is alive and because he lives, so also do you live. No matter how painful life may become and how difficult the times may grow, the fact that Jesus is alive, this is what brings confidence to my life as a believer. So listen, let me tell you what this means. It means Christianity is not simply a religious system that was founded by someone who lived, died, and convinced his followers of a lie. The truth of resurrection makes Christianity unique. You can pretty much visit the grave of every other world religion's founder and there you will find his remains. Buddha, dead. Muhammad, dead. Stalin, Lenin, Marx, dead, dead, dead. But Jesus Christ, alive, living, Lord, and He's coming again. <laughs> All other religions and philosophical systems of this world are dependent upon their founder's ideas, but not the founder's resurrection. The Christianity is different. Without the resurrection of Jesus, you have no gospel. You have no Christianity. So one final consequence, you bring all of this to a head, to a fitting conclusion. Ultimately, if there were no resurrection, verse 19, Paul says that our situation would be hopeless. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people the most to be pitied. If Christianity only involved the ethical teachings of Jesus but no hope beyond the grave, we would be of all people the most to be pitied. We would be on our way to the grave maybe a bit more moral and ethical but not with one shred of hope for anything more. We should all just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may die if there is no resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, ultimately nothing matters. But... If Christ did, in fact, rise, then everything matters. Everything matters. Eugene uh, Peterson, in his paraphrase, I love how he paraphrases this passage. He says, now let me ask you something profound but troubling. If you became believers because you trusted the proclamation that Christ is alive, risen from the dead, How can you let people say there's no such thing as a resurrection? If there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. He says, and let's face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, then everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything that you've staked your life upon is smoke and mirrors. He says, if all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years... He says, we're a pretty sorry lot. If all Christianity is, is just a little bit of inspiration for a few short years and then that's it. We're a pretty sorry lot. I heard an illustration of this this past week. I thought it was so profound. You know, some years ago, there was a movie that was released called The Theory of Everything. It was based upon the uh, world-renowned physicist, his life, Stephen Hawking. Most of you are familiar with Stephen Hawking. Uh, As a young man, he was diagnosed with ALS, uh, left him paralyzed, without motor skills, and yet despite living with this condition, Hawking became an icon in the scientific community due to his work in the field of cosmology. In fact, he was even awarded a PhD for his study of the, the black holes and that kind of thing. But whenever he stood before the committee, when he was awarded his PhD, here's what he said. He said, it would be wonderful if we could find one simple way to explain everything in the universe. And so basically, that's what Stephen Hawking lived for. In his quest to find a theory behind everything in the universe. One of the most regularly asked questions of Stephen Hawking was this question. Dr. Hawking, can you prove that God does not exist? And he replied this way, we are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet of a very average star in the outer suburbs of one of a thousand million other galaxies. So it's difficult to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice that we exist. He said, We're each free to believe what we want, and it's my view that the simplest explanation is that there is no God. No one created our universe, no one directs our fate. And this leads me to a profound realization there's probably no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, and for that, I am grateful. Now think about the contradiction in his statement there. No one created our universe, yet he turns right around and talks about the grand design of the universe, something for which he is grateful to, which I would say, who are you grateful to? Isn't that something? To have such a brilliant mind and to look at the vastness of space and The overwhelming nature of life in the universe and to live with this quest to discover a theory of everything. Only to die in that search. Even his own conscience told him otherwise. Now you compare what he said to what someone else before him said, the psalmist of Israel. Psalm 136. You can read it in your own time, but all 26 verses the psalmist goes through and mentions just the intricacies intricacies of the universe and the vastness of creation, the detail of creation. And in every verse, he follows up a statement with this statement, for his steadfast love endures forever. 26 times the psalmist of Israel says, his steadfast love endures forever. So you've got two men, but two radically different approaches to life. Both of these men come along and they look at life in the universe and they say, it's beyond me. Stephen Hawking says, it's all beyond me and I don't believe. But the psalmist of Israel says, it's beyond me and I do believe. Tell me what makes the difference in someone's life like that. It's only the saving grace of God that makes the difference. Folks, aren't you glad that when it comes to meaning and significance and purpose, aren't you glad God hadn't given you a theory to stake your hopes upon? We're not going to leave here in just a minute with a a theory upon which to build our lives. No, what does the apostle Paul say there in verse number 20? He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He does not say in theory, he's been raised from the dead. In fact, that means there's hope for every man, woman and child and the enduring life of Christ reminds me that this world is not all there is. Would you stand with me for prayer? Romans 10, 9 simply says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So do you hear that? It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The facts stand for themselves. The faith in Christ, it's, it's more than just an intellectual exercise looking at the facts and coming to a conclusion. It's coming to personal faith in Jesus Christ. Have you come to personal faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know that Christ is alive and well? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is gracious? Have you turned from your sin, placed your faith and trust in Christ who died for you on the cross and who rose again from the dead? Is he your Lord? If not, then listen, why not today? That's not a theory. My friend, it's a fact. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. Thank you for the solid bedrock of our faith. Thank you for hope, biblical hope, a living hope. We've been born again to this living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Lord, I'm thankful that what Paul does here, this hypothetical situation, it's just that. It's a hypothetical situation. But the fact stands for itself. The tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. He is alive. He's coming again. God, may we be sent into the world declaring the truth of this message. If there's any person under the sound of my voice today, Lord, either here or online, that has not repented of their sin and come to faith personally in Jesus Christ, may today be the day of salvation for them. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.